aftermath. <laughs> of a day long orgasmic afterglow. Being able to transcend the limitations of identity, abandon sexuality, and enter into the realm of the sacred through the sex act. Turning what has long been just the mere act of pleasure into a complete magical ritual. On today's podcast... <laughs> Maybe I'll start it properly for once in today's podcast. I'm going to ramble on and give a sermon of sacred sexuality. Today's sermon, or rather just the mere talk. Today's talk will be about the death of sexuality. Now, sexuality is one of the basic parts of our identity, one of the earliest ones and most deep-seated and strongly held To the point that differences of sexuality can result in such levels of hatred that people would kill others, would torture others. In the various torture camps attempting to convert someone into a different sexuality. Well, when we analyze this human behavior, we see the core problems that will, that have and will in future on scale lead to the death of identity as a fixed concept in any sense, the death of sexuality and the various clingings and attachments to it that create and perpetuate suffering in the world and unnecessary suffering, potentially unnecessary. But when 
we are fully settled on nihilism as our foundation a transcendent nihilism then we find ourselves in an interesting predicament because where we find ourselves is that you have the present scientific arguments since I last read up on this mid last year when I did a talk on sexual identity and gender identity and gender dysphoria and then this talk I basically asked three questions what is gender that is what is gender identity what is sex which is what is sexual identity and what is it that makes any particular activity or thing being referred to as sexual why is it for some that feet or hands are a sex object of high regard and for others they are disgusted by feet and hands <laughs> And since we are all humans here, assumingly, we have both experienced both of these values at a time. The idea that we can experience both a fixed identity and a fluid sense of identity it means that there is something about identity that is fundamentally voluntary that we create and through our habits perpetuate our identities they are not something objective or rather they are only objective in so far as we subscribe to them rarely do we hold our identities as relativistic categories often it's had to be it's held to be absolute saying that i am such and such that's a description of one's being as being a certain kind of being as opposed to many 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 other types of being an infinite number the infinity of our potential reduced into a discrete value that is of minimal use to us that is often entrapping instead of liberating because as much as 
our labels, our categories aid us in terms of knowledge, technology, communication, and so on, and our cognitive and psychological and further spiritual development when held fixedly, when held absolutely, when held and clung to for far too long, all development stagnates, and the stagnation of development results in degradation, devolution, and in the simplest form, all forms of suffering arise from this, the pathotropic mode of growth, growing towards stagnation and soon pathology. Because the progression of the pathotropic mode feels like actual, meaningful, healthy progression. One who has been in a stagnant position for a very long time and starts to feel the pressure and need to grow, to develop, any sense of progress even into pathology seems positive because any movement is viewed to be better than stagnation better than the status quo and so What we have with the conversion camp is that we have this bizarre marriage of a fixed notion and a fluid notion of identity, (laughs) specifically of sexuality. The idea there is that, well, heterosexuality in most cases is then viewed through heteronormativity to be the norm or the correct sexuality. (laughs) It's odd. It's the correct one. It's the normal one. It's how things are supposed to be. But oddly there, that idea is held so fixedly that anyone who is queer, who has a queer sexuality, is viewed to be abnormal. And there is this miscalled therapy (laughs) 
although I'll, I'll leave some room for those who are afraid and pained by a queer sexuality and would prefer a life that is more supported by a society, a heteronormative life. And so those with internalized heterosexism and heteronormativity, they would be actually, they would be one of the few people who would actually welcome such conversion therapies. Hoping that it would free them, but this is not exactly the point, but it's going into a direction in which the funny thing, the funny contradiction about conversion therapy is that if it does in fact work, then sexuality is not absolute. The working or the success of conversion therapy fundamentally undermines the notion that there is a default, there is a norm, there is an absolute sexuality that everyone should be, should have. <laughs> if conversion therapy works, it means that you can change your psycho you can change your sexuality at will which means it can be anything and instead a fluid sexuality is the actual proper representation of the way of things instead of a fixed one because if you can get conversion therapy from homosexual to heterosexual then you can convert from heterosexual to homosexual. You can convert from allosexual to asexual and any number of sexualities. It becomes a potential which you are free to alter at will. And that's where the potential the infinite potential of humanity shows itself in this peculiar darkness. The crisis, the evil, the suffering shows you that you can in fact change for better or for worse. And you can change yourself at will. And this is the basic importance of all spirituality. <laughs> this is a very simple idea. Is that there is such a thing as existential change. You can become someone else. Fully. Fully. And if you doubt that the body that the body can be changed significantly, there's enough cybernetics and transhuman surgeries, plastic surgeries, and biohacking with genetic modification of the human body, which, if successful, can 
so fundamentally can actually change your species if you wanted to. <laughs> so yes. So yes. So yes. Now, what I call the death of sexuality. <laughs> The death of sexuality and the death of identity. Is that is basically the hypersexual or postsexual or in another sense, transsexual culture of Grinder <laughs> and other dating apps. Or the internet in general, basically online, you can fully choose to represent yourself however you please in digital reality but the thing people don't quickly pick up on from this ability to represent yourself however you please is that because your digital identity can be anything then your physical identity can also be anything I have in the past Introduced myself as Cepheus and Siegfried, in which I basically lived as one of the characters in my book, in one of my short stories, which you can find in the archives at ndombemyama.com. N-T-O-M-B-E-M-N-Y-A-M-A dot wordpress dot com And basically this involved living out the scripts I had written for myself having the conversations I had in those books and having the relationships I had in those books. You can do this so easily if you can if you've ever acted in your life or if you've ever written a story or even if you've been empathic and you've been in an argument with someone and wondered what someone else was thinking and run this, even when you were angry, you got home and had this internalized argument and conversation and you'd say, then they'd say this and then I'd say this and then they'd say that 
and then I'd counter with this, and you play out this long argument. <laughs> you basically rehearse for future arguments. That's why we do this. Apart from playing duka or clinging and not being able to just get over things very quickly through an underdeveloped psyche and an underdeveloped spirit pretty much what's being done there from an evolutionary perspective is practicing for future social encounters that's why we initially do it automatically order to prepare for future similar problems which are experiences conflicts but yes but yes and so what you learn from this and sort of strategizing and thinking like others and in most cases thinking for others and instead of asking someone and asking instead of asking your crush out on a date instead what you do is run the simulation of the conversation in your head and you run the worst possible one <laughs> and then after you've run the worst possible one in most cases what will happen is that you will answer for the person and you will never actually ask the person out and hear the actual real answer. You will reject yourself before any actual rejection has occurred. And this is just basic self-hatred. And so... What you're doing when you're thinking like another person, when you're simulating, when you're simulating the thoughts of others, this theory of mind type of a thing is a basic example of how you can actually change the way you think. And if you continue to think in a specific way that is different from your current way of thinking you would become someone else <laughs> a crucial aspect of your identity would change if say the voice the thinking voice in your head is pretty much a bully and if that voice was separated and placed in another body and you are stuck with that person for five hours in an elevator if that makes you cringe <laughs> and think that that would be the worst kind of hell <laughs> then you understand the predicament you are in and pretty much all those thoughts all those habits of thought which, if you think you are your mind, you think that's you who's thinking. 
instead of it being something of a field of thoughts through which your brain passes through and picks up random signals. That is, in the simplest sense, thoughts think themselves. The same way your eyes sees, <laughs> the same way your eyes see on their own without you voluntarily seeing, which is different from looking. Looking is voluntarily seeing. In the same way you can see with your mind, it can think thoughts on its own involuntarily, and you can use it voluntarily. But this voluntary, involuntary situation shows you that you are not your mind. Just do this for a few seconds, right? Take this basic thing, if you don't believe you are your mind. Sit quietly and try not to think. Just take a few, take three minutes. (laughs) Just take, give it a minute, sit for a minute. (laughs) Sit for a minute and just don't think. If you haven't meditated for a few years, for hundreds of hours, <laughs> for thousands of hours, hundreds most likely, it depends really. But yes, if you're not an advanced meditator, a skilled meditator, it is likely that when you try to do this and not think, a bunch of thoughts just showed up in your head. <laughs> well, if you were busy trying not to think and thoughts showed up anyway, thoughts that you didn't think, <laughs> then how are you your mind? How are you the thinker of thoughts? These, these habits. But I was saying about Grinder and the ability to present yourself however you please. That aspect of identity. And it shows that if you actually present yourself a certain way for a long enough period you will eventually forget how you used to present yourself (laughs) and you will eventually start thinking that's you the sort of character you put on becomes part of how you normally think Because it was you in the first place. It was one of your potentials. Any character you play and play well is just one of the identities you have. You just, in a sense, have habits of identity, habits of identification and personalization. 
you identify with certain parts of yourself more often and more intensely than others and then the sort of parts of you that you identify most with you then refer to as who you truly are when you have many times since your childhood changed out these parts entirely the cells on your body right now are not the same ones you were born with all the cells every single last cell that composes your body is completely different from the one you were born with and if you think you are your memory your memory changes more often than any other part of you <laughs> So even the sort of strung together narrative of your memories as you rehearse them, rewrite them, and restore them, that also isn't really you. But remembered when we went through all the planes, when we look at the classes of phenomena of which there are at least six now <laughs> right so you have soma which is all physical phenomena including time you have Psyche, which is all psychological, mental, emotional phenomena, which is your ego. Your ego is basically your psychological body. You have spirit, your spiritual body is your soul. And your ego and your psyche can, like your physical body, take any form. But since with psyche and spirit, it is more malleable. With the ego and the soul, it is far more malleable, far more voluntary. That is the interesting thing about it. It's that... the higher classes, if you can call them higher, certain classes in which you become more developed and more skilled in, the more malleable they become, the more easy it is to change your shape. If you have a good understanding of nutrition and exercise, basic understanding of anatomy, then you can, like professional trainers, train actors and actresses and NBs to basically change the shape of their body very quickly between shoots. So the body is far more malleable than we think it is. 
everything is sort of made out of stuff that you can voluntarily shape how you will. For example, my one friend, she can basically use magic to turn her period off. She can will her period not to occur and just not menstruate. But when she eventually does menstruate, <laughs> when she switches it back on, all the menstruation that she didn't do happens all at once. <laughs> so yes. So yes. So yes. The death of sexuality is that with digital sex you can literally have any sexuality you want. You are not limited by the sexuality you use to describe your physical body. Acts you do digitally are not limited by acts you would or wouldn't do physically. Often, with the various digital encounters I have in Grinder, very few people ever realize this for some reason. Although it is there, it is there in this sort of peculiar unconscious sense, where in the private set, in the private setting of pornography. They basically watch every single thing and masturbate to all of it. But when asked physically what they would actually do and what they wouldn't do, there would be a discrepancy. Because who they are sexually, their sexuality differs between contexts. But because of identification and personalization of the physical as the real, as the actual self, there's this idea like the question of are traps gay as it's ill put? Are cute boys who cross dress and look cuter than females? <laughs> Is it gay to have sex with cross-dressers? Cross-dressers who don't identify as females, but when they cross-dress, they do present themselves and behave for all intents and purposes as females. Right? 100% physical and psychological cross-dressing fully embodies the character. Right? <laughs> but if you ask someone, they'll be like, well, no, she's a woman. <laughs> if she wasn't dressed like a woman, then I wouldn't have sex with her. <laughs> the male persona there 
would not have sex. You would not have sex with a man in some cases who has sex with cross-dressers would not have sex with the male persona. So who are we really? (laughs) Right? Which one's your real sexuality? Right? If you have no sex drive, you can easily be called, you can easily identify as an asexual. Utterly indifferent to sex. Right after you have a really intense orgasm, you are rather indifferent to sex. Once you are sexually satisfied. So aren't you then also asexual at that time? Aren't we? Exactly why do we think that there's anything fixed about our identity? Just because you've called yourself a certain thing for many, many years to the point that you've convinced yourself and you behave like that thing, (laughs) does it really mean you are that? And if that's the case and we can basically call ourselves whatever we want and behave however we please... And if we behave a certain way long enough and identify and personalize a certain set of behavior, a certain identity, long enough, then it becomes habitual. We habitually, automatically, subconsciously behave in congruence with that identity. So sexuality and identity as a fixed concept is dead. (laughs) It's dead. Or rather, would we propose a new conception of it? A new conception would say that for the various planes for the different classes, which I did not complete. After this bird, you have the infinite, and the body of the infinite is your godhood, your deityhood, your divine divinity. And beyond the infinite is the undescribable. <laughs> The ineffable, and there you have your ineffable body. We had a hard time getting around the idea of the infinite, but when you get into the idea of the indescribable, we can't even say that it's infinite. The infinite, the only thing we could say about it is that it's infinite. 
plus all the other definitions that applied for the previous classes applied for it as well. But the ineffable or the mystery and the mysterious body is altogether something that is persistently out of reach. In a sense, it would be experientially defined as since you have infinite potential, since we have infinite potential, you can become anything. So that becoming anything and this infinite becoming, you sort of describe that as everything you, everything you can become which is everything you currently aren't. (laughs) And so you describe it like that. What's one clear term that you can use to describe everything that you aren't currently? But it's even more than that, though. even more than that. Because everything you aren't currently, or everything you currently think you're not, (laughs) everything you currently think you're not, and that you don't act like, includes things you are utterly, utterly unaware of. Things you have no idea, no clue about at all. And so, beyond that, I have the intuition, I intuit that. Not only do I infer, I intuit that there are far more classes than just these six. I experience the seventh class, but if the sixth is defined by its ineffability, <laughs> the seventh is something for which there are no words and for which numbers are useless. The best you can sort of do is what they do in what Maharishi Mahesh does with think I think Surya, right? The fourth the fourth state of consciousness. Saying there's waking, dreaming, deep sleep, and Turiya. Turiya is pretty much just Turiya when translated means the fourth. <laughs> 
in in naming as an artist as a creative who names things a lot who has modeled hundreds of stages and give them all sorts of names pretty much saying the fourth is cheating <laughs> it's, it's cheating <laughs> that's called cheating you didn't properly na- my idea of naming is that the name you give something must actually be based on some fundamental characteristic some defining aspect of the thing named there must be some basis within a phenomena for the name you give it although the second one works for saying the fourth or the seventh class saying is the seventh doesn't really tell you what it is so it fails the first requirement the only kind of clue you get on it, of it is the idea of something more unconscious than the unconscious it's something you would describe as the infinite unconscious which is kind of peculiar statement to use the infinitely mysterious the double mystery things like this which sort of give you some bare bare minimum sense of what's been talked about but does not yet give you a felt sense of what's there so you'd basically have the mystery which goes on through the infinite up to the undifferentiated mystery which would be described as something you're completely unconscious of something you don't know that you even don't know it <laughs> you have no clue about it at all something far over there and then you say beyond that if you can describe such a thing as beyond you say beyond that well if we know very very little and almost nothing about the sixth category about the ineffable we know even less about the seventh <laughs> sort of the reach of cognition goes so far the reach of cognition goes as far as the sixth after which cognition fails and you either just intuit have a sense that there's more <laughs> simple sense that much because before you're like no the only thing real is this everything else every, the only thing real is the physical class of phenomena everything physical is actually properly real and everything else isn't 
to the point where you deny the existence of spirit. <laughs> to the point of denying the third class and beyond as anything existent. As anything you can experience. And there's the catch on that end. So the sense is just an intuition. Intuition that most likely there's more. <laughs> so I think maybe the best you can do is call the sixth the ineffable. And you have your mystery as your body there. And then... <laughs> and then the seventh is the incomprehensible. So the one you can't really say what it is <laughs> and the other one you can't even understand it to say what it is. <laughs> you can only intuit it. And then you'd say the, the eighth is the unintuitable. <laughs> it's that thing, the transexperientiable. The transperceptive. It's something you merely sense. You do not experience it. You do not intuit it. With intuition, you can sort of get an idea, get some kind of knowledge, get a grasp of something about a phenomena. Right? You can have the subtle certainty that it's there. So based on this very subtle certainty, what you have beyond that is the sensible or the sensate. <laughs> it's just, no, this is gentle, gentle, the, the vaguest notion that it's there. <laughs> Pretty much that. Right. It's incomprehensible, but you have an intuitive sense, intuitive sense of it. And then the eighth one, let's see. Yeah, the eighth one is incomprehensible, but you have an intuitive sense of, of it. The ninth class, you have no intuitive sense of it but you can sense it. So there's sensory data there. By what means the sensory data is coming in, you cannot for the life of you ever describe. <laughs> there's no hope. <laughs> there's no hope of being able, able to say by what means And then the tenth is, yeah, you had a complete loss now. <laughs> the tenth is just reverted to your old intuitive sense of, there's probably more. <laughs> I have no idea what that more could possibly be, but there's probably more. <laughs> so that idea of more 
This is just placed there as the tenth. <laughs> and you basically just label more all the way through. My proposition is that with each death and incarnation and lifetime following each class, you'll first die and lose your physical body and then your ego and then your soul and then your divinity. and then your divinity and then your mystery and then the seventh the eighth the ninth and as you shift to existing only on the higher and higher classes you become more and more awake of what's there. So basically there is this fundamental immortality because there's always, there'll always be some part of us that is made out of something, out of the totality of reality that will still exist in some form as long as reality exists. <laughs> right as long as this stuff you'll exist so you're as mortal as infinite as all the stuff that is possible the death of sexuality the death of identity is the sense that you have two layers you have a sexuality a set of sexualities a set of identities related to each class related to each plane and so at the very least if we restrict ourselves to the physical we will say that you have your digital identity and sexuality and you have your physical identity and sexuality or your physical identities and your physical sexualities and similarly you have your digital identities and have your digital sexualities And so already there's more to us than what we typically identify as ourselves. Identity and sexuality is dead. Long live sexuality and identity.